So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. So we're continuing in our passage in Ephesians 4. So, so last week, if you weren't with us, we looked at verses 1 through 6 of Ephesians 4. And this week, we're going to look at verses 7 through 16. And so the, the, the sermon title is Walking Worthy Part 2, which means last week, verses 1 through 6, was Walking Worthy Part 1. Okay, and so, so there's, a, there's a theme here. Paul is, is, this is one main section, and there's one argument that, that kind of characterizes this, this section of verses. And so last week we saw Paul argued that walking worthy of your calling meant maintaining the unity that Jesus himself had purchased. This reconciling work of Jesus on the cross where Jew and Gentile, different races, different ethnicities, different ages, where Jesus through his death on the cross reconciled different types of people and created one new man. And so Paul says, if you want to walk worthy of your calling, you better maintain that unity. You don't create the unity. You don't make it out of nothing. It's already been made and purchased by Jesus, so you maintain it. And so last week, verses 1 through 6, there's a a stress on unity. And this week, what Paul does, he's still in the the, the arena of unity, but what he's going to say in verses 7 through 16 is that walking worthy of your calling means pursuing maturity as a Christian, as a body, so pursuing maturity, and the way he's going to argue is that it happens through mutual ministry within the body, okay? So within this unity, Paul's going to transition and say, yeah, we we are all united, but within our unity, there is diversity, namely, there's different gifts, all kinds of different diverse gifts that are given, but the purpose of these different gifts are for one purpose, one, one main goal, which is to grow towards maturity. And so this morning, a sentence that may help you, so if you're, if you're taking notes, if you're um, an elementary school, um, here's a sentence that will help you hopefully remember the main point here. Christ gives diverse gifts for one purpose. I mean, that's the sentence that I think summarizes verses 7 through 16. Christ gives diverse gifts for one purpose, and that purpose, as we'll see, is for maturity, for growth. And so walking worthy of our calling in the second part means pursuing maturity through mutual ministry, through the use of our diverse gifts. Well, let's read our passage. You can follow along as I read. I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read the whole section. So I'm going to read it, begin in Ephesians 4, verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 16. So follow along. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, on the pew in front of you. You can look, look on beside with the person beside you. So Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to to which you have been called. Here's how. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith. One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, quote, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended 
far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Lord, this is, this is your word, your spirit-inspired word, and we are your word-created people. We come to you as, as, as men and women who are dead in our sins and trespasses, but who heard the good news of the gospel and have been made alive by your spirit in Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be receptive of your word. Would you work in us as a church body, through this word, would you instruct us and encourage us? Lord, our prayer is that we as a local church would be built up in love. And so to that end, we ask that you would work. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So there's only two points here this morning. This section, there's two points. Point one, verses seven through 11, Christ gives diverse gifts. Point two, verses 12 through 16, for one purpose. Okay, so Christ gives diverse gifts for one purpose. That's our sentence broken down into two sections. And so we're going to work through these two sections. So, so let's begin. If you don't have a Bible, you should pull it out because, because you're going to be looking at it a lot. Okay, so, so let's begin there, verse 7 of chapter 4. So Paul transitions from verse 6 to 7, and he transitions from speaking about unity of the body to describing it in terms of diversity. So notice there in verse 7, notice what he says. He says, but... Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, so there's diversity. He's just talking about unity, but he says, but to each one. That's, that's, that's differentiation. There's, each one of us has received something from Jesus. Now, this diversity, notice, it's, it's not ethnic or social or anything of that sort in this context. Instead, Paul is saying the diversity has to do with the distribution of gifts. He says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's Gift And so Paul here says, each one, each member of the body has received grace. So, so Christ has showered you with his grace, and you have received a gift of grace that is according to the measure that has been sovereignly distributed to you. In other words, the diverse gifts have been sovereignly distributed among the members of the body. And so God decides who gets what. It's his measure of grace that he gives out. And this is the same thing Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 12. He would say that the Spirit apportions to each member individually as he wills, which means, Christian, there has not been any error or mistake in the distribution of gifts to the members of the body. There's been no mistake. 
Instead, every gift has been given for the good of the large, larger body, the good of the whole, which means it, that the diversity of gifts and abilities within the body of Christ, within the local manifestation of the body of Christ, every gift, rather than generating envy or jealousy, should lead to thanksgiving. You all have different gifts. Someone's going to have a gift that you don't have, but instead of you saying, I wish I had that, it's not up to you or them to determine who gets what gift. Jesus sovereignly distributes them, and he does so according to his will. And so you, rather than looking out and saying, I wish I had, you ought to look within and say, look at what God has given me. And so it should result in thanksgiving because, and here's the whole point, every gift has been distributed not for your own good, but for the good of the whole. And so if you're caught up with what you don't have, the, the whole lacks because part of its body is not working as it ought. I mean, th- this isn't unique to Paul's teaching here in Ephesians. Any, there, there are several places where Paul, in talking about the distribution of gifts, makes this same point. So 1 Corinthians 12. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12. This is verses 4 through 8. But listen to what he says. He, say, he says, now there are a variety of gifts, but there's one spirit, the same spirit. There are varieties of service but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, the gift for the common good. And so Paul there says, there are different manifestations. There's different gifts, but it's all for the good of the whole, of the one. And it's God who gives it in Romans 12. Romans 12, listen to the same point. Paul, for as in one body we have many members... And the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, Paul says. So he says the human body, it's, that's an analogy for how the church works. My finger is not my toe, and my foot is not my hand. They're different, but they're all part of the same body. And Paul's saying that's how it is with spiritual gifts. You're given different gifts, but they're all part of the same. So whatever part you have, use it because it's from God for the good of others. And so there's unity here. So even though he says each one of us is given diverse gifts, the point is still there's unity. We function as one. He's establishing that within the unity of the body, each member has a distinctive part to play. Each member has a distinctive service to perform, and each part playing its role leads to the body functioning effectively as one. That's his point here as he starts this transition. And notice verse 8, how he continues. This is his logic behind the the distribution of gifts. Look at verse 8. So verse 8, therefore it says, comma, quote. So it's probably inset in your text. There's probably an indent there. Quote, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So Paul here, right, hopefully you have a little footnote in your Bible that says Psalm 68. So that's telling you Paul, as he's writing, he's quoting, he's referencing an Old Testament passage. Now before we look at the specifics of that passage, when we come to this quote, it's easy to understand Paul's main point. He's saying, okay, we've all received different gifts Therefore, it said, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Context makes very clear, he's talking about Jesus who ascended and gave gifts to men. Jesus, he's just said, is the one who's given all these gifts. So so that's the main point. So Paul sees Psalm 68 that he quotes, 
as evidence, as support that Jesus is the one who's ascended and has the one who's distributed these gifts to his body. And so Psalm 68, we're not going to go there, but if you went there, the whole psalm is a song about the Lord, the Lord God himself of the Old Testament, Yahweh, having ascended on high, and the one who, whose rule and power and authority and supremacy is shown over his enemies. That's what Psalm 68 is, is the Lord rising and his enemies scattering. And the specific verse there in Psalm 68 that Paul quotes in Ephesians 4 is, here's what it re- how it reads in Psalm 68. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. So that's, that's, if you go back to Psalm 68, that's the wording, that's the translation that you're going to find. And so Paul, right, this image, well, well, for, so the image of Psalm 68 Right? There, there's this ascension on high and a leading of a host of captives and a receiving of gifts of men. And so the, the, the image is that, of, think of Roman times, of a conquering war hero who's returning home from battle. Right? A triumphant victor processes back to the capital city. Right? And with him are all those he's captured. Right? His procession, his parade are, are those whom he has captured. And the whole city rejoices because their war hero has accomplished victory and now is bringing, right, a returning, not dead, he's not in a coffin, but now he's victorious. And there's pomp and circumstance, there's celebration. And there's a mention of gifts. Now, the, the Psalm 68 says that he's receiving gifts among men, but Paul here in Ephesians 4 says that he gave gifts to men. So do you see the issue? That's a different verb that means something different, doesn't it? So in Psalm 68, he's receiving gifts from men, and in Ephesians 4, he's giving gifts to men. So, so that's a problem, or it appears to be a problem, doesn't it? That's a difference. So, so what's Paul doing here? Why is he using a different verb? Because it is a different verb. It's, it's different. It's one thing to receive gifts. It's another thing to give gifts. That's, do you understand that means something different? I don't think what Paul is doing, what some people argue, I don't think what he's doing is simply deciding to switch the verb. Just say, oh, well, I know what it means, but I'm just going to change it around and just use it so that it means something different. I don't think that's what Paul's doing. Now, there's lots of options that have been put forward to understand this, this difference, and, and they get into, into the weeds, but, but, but I just simply want to say this. I think what Paul is doing here is that when he changes, receives gifts to give gifts, I think what Paul is doing is interpreting Psalm 68 in light of the coming of Christ. And so it's a progressive revelation. So the Yahweh, the God of Psalm 68, Paul has now seen in the person of Jesus. And so when he is, is talking about in this, this section of Ephesians that Jesus has given gifts, he thinks, oh yeah, Jesus has helped us understand Psalm 68. And so Jesus as the conquering war hero, it's not about him receiving gifts from men. Jesus turns that image on its head. The fulfillment of Psalm 68 is not that he receives gifts from men, but actually that he distributes his gifts to men. And so Jesus, I think Paul is simply saying, he's the fulfillment of Psalm 68, and he's the one who gives his gifts to men, which is the exact point that Paul's making here. In other words, Paul, as an inspired author, recognizes that the conquering Lord of Psalm 68 is fulfilled by Christ himself. He is the ultimate risen, ascended Lord of Psalm 68. And the result of his victory, his conquering, is that he distributes his gifts. So I think that's what Paul's saying here. 
And I think this is confirmed by how Paul explains in parentheses what he's just said in verses 9 and 10. So look there at verses 9 and 10. So these are, this is a parenthetical thought. So Paul is now explaining what he just did because maybe people are saying, well, what are you talking about? How's that, how's that work out in your mind? And so verse 9, Paul says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? Verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And so in offering this explanation, verse 9 and 10, Paul clearly sees Psalm 68, the Psalm 68 quotation as a reference to the ascension of Jesus and the bestowal of his gifts. That's, what, that's how he explains it. And so I think Paul here is simply saying Jesus is the one who, that, who has ascended. Right? This has been common, common knowledge. Jesus ascended, but, but his point is before he ascended, he also his ascension assumes a descension. And I don't think that, that we have to say that this descension is below the earth to hell and Hades. And that's, that's how the traditional church fathers understood that. I don't think that's necessarily what Paul means here. I don't think that has to be what he means. It could be, but I don't think that's Paul's point. So people, some people say that the descension here to the lower region, so if you notice the ESV makes a translation decision and clarifies the lower regions, the earth, right? Some don't make that clarification in the translation, just say the lower regions, and so throughout church history, some people have understood that to mean to, that Jesus, between the time of his, his, uh, his burial and his resurrection, went to the depths of hell. Right? And he delivered the captives, those who had died in Christ from Adam to his resurrection. Maybe that's right. I don't think that's, I don't think that's what his point is. I think Paul is simply tracing the, the travel that Jesus made. And so Jesus descended from heaven. So I think the descension is from heaven to earth. And this is... This is confirmed by Jesus' own testimony of himself. Like in John 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he says, hey, I, I'm teaching. You, you don't even understand what I'm talking about, earthly things. I've descended from heaven. And I, I got to teach you heavenly things. If you can't understand earthly things, how are you going to understand these heavenly things? But his point is, I descended from heaven. Or later in John chapter 6, when he's talking to the Jews, he says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. That's me, Jesus says. And so Jesus clearly understood his appearance on earth, right, his incarnation as a result of dissension. So I think that's the, I think that's the dissension that, that Paul is talking to here. And so his earthly ministry, once when he ascends, he's incarnate, he's born, he lives, and after his earthly ministry is done, right, he's, he's buried, he, he's raised from the dead, he appears to hundreds of people there. But after his resurrection and his appearance, he then ascends, and so, so the end of the Gospels and the beginning of the, the book of Acts marks the ascension. And so Paul's point here is the ascension mentioned in Psalm 68 is the ascension of Jesus. And so that's why he's identifying Jesus as the subject of Psalm 68. And so Jesus passing through the heavens in the language of, of Hebrews, Jesus in his ascension, he goes through the heavens sitting in the heavenly places as the one who's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. When he was raised, now he's seated at the right hand of the Father in the position of authority. And so he's the victorious Lord over all, which is why, right, as he, as he ascends, right, the captives don't necessarily have to be those that he's delivered as much as, think about the context of Ephesians, the captives are all the authorities that are against him that have been conquered by his death and resurrection. No earthly power 
can prevent Jesus from doing what he wants to do, namely giving gifts to his church. He has ascended to the place of all authority so that no principality or power can thwart his plan. That's what Paul's saying. He has all authority, and he has, from his position of authority, distributed these gifts. This ascended Christ distributes gifts to his church, and nothing can thwart this process. And so Paul's encouraging the, the, the church. He's given gifts to you, which means that you have them because he has the authority to ensure that you get them. The gifts distributed by the sovereign Lord don't get lost in the mail. They don't get caught up in the paperwork when they're received. They come to you because they're determined to come to you from the all-sovereign hand of Christ. And so verse 11, the ascended Christ, he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And so Paul immediately goes, the gifts that this sovereign Lord has given, he starts labeling them out, listing them. And these gifts, right, these are individual people who Christ has specifically gifted for ministry in his church. And so there's, there's a group of people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, the first thing to say, this, this list is not exhaustive. And so if you read that list and say, wait a minute, I'm not on there, right? That doesn't mean you're left out. I'll say more about that in a second. But Christ's gifts to men are not restricted to these. Okay, that, that's not Paul's point. He mentions these because these are part of the point he's going to make in the rest of this section. But, but all throughout the New Testament, when Paul lists New Testament gifts, no list is identical, which tells us there's, there's not an exhaustive list anywhere. Spiritual gifts, there's not like a, a verse where it says, here's all the gifts, all right, pick one and choose. No, there, there's no exhaustive list. In fact, there, there's five places where these lists come together, and none of them are, are the same. In fact, all of them diverge quite significantly. So in each context where Paul lists these gifts, they're for the purpose of his point he's making in that context. So Paul doesn't think, he doesn't put together a spiritual gift inventory and says, okay, you have to fall within here, better figure out what it is. That's not what Paul does, ever. None of the lists are identical. So, so Paul here just lists some gifts that were given to individuals in the church. There's a variety of gifts. There are many gifts. Paul says this over and over, many, many, variety. And so we can't say, oh, here's a list, it's on here. No, there are numerous gifts from one God for one purpose. And so notice these specific gifts here, not exhaustive, but these are the ones he mentions here. I see four groups here. There's the apostles, there's the prophets, there's the evangelists, and then there's the shepherds and teachers. And the reason I only see four gifts. Some of you, maybe even your translations make it out to be five, which may be right, but, but the reason I've, I've labeled it, listed it in four, is because that last group, there's no definite article before teachers. So if you notice the, the list, the apostles, right? There's, there's a definite article there. He's given the apostles. He's given the prophets. He's given the evangelists. He's given the shepherds and, no, the teachers. So I think that's just one, one category there, the shepherd teachers, or the pastor teachers, some translations may say. And so Paul says that Jesus has given his church these offices. And so Paul's point, we're not going to get into the specifics of these specific callings or these gifts, but Paul's point here 
in mentioning these gifts, think about what do all of these gifts, all of these individuals have in common? What, what's the common theme here? All of these gifts, here's why Paul mentions these, all of these gifts are tied directly to the ministry of the Word in the church. And so, so these are Word gifts where, where God, through Jesus has given the church these gifts, and these gifts tied to the Word, the gospel, the teaching, they're tied to that, and these gifts lead to the growth of the church. So God has given these offices to the church for the church's growth and maturity. And that's exactly what he argues in verses 12 through 16, as we'll see in a minute. And so the resurrected Christ has bestowed his grace on every member of his body, but he's especially gifted certain individuals within the body to establish churches, to minister the word of God, and to equip others for service in the church. And so the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastor teachers, all at different times, were central to the development and the maturing process of the church. We're not going to go into detail, but, but I would argue that the, the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists were transitional in their role. So that their authority was unique, so that, so that in the church today, I don't think that we should have people walking around claiming to be apostles or prophets. Because at the time of the New Testament, there was no scripture, and so the word, the teaching, the doctrine, the, the, the faith was delivered to apostles and prophets, and, and these individuals spoke as of God, from God himself. They were the foundation, as Paul said in chapter 2, the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Once the foundation is set, the building keeps going, but we don't need the apostles and prophets anymore because we have the scriptures. We have the authority and the teaching of the apostles and prophets for us preserved. And so we have pastor teachers who are gifted to the church for its growth. Before we move on, let me make an application here before we look at the purposes, because I think this is important here. This text teaches, verses 7 through 12, that every member of the church is gifted for participation in the church. Another way of saying this, we have a gifted membership. I'm not saying that because I'm the pastor of Fox Hill Road Baptist Church. I think we have a gifted membership, but I'm talking about the church universally. Every local church has a gifted membership. Paul says that the grace of Christ has been given to each member in the form of a spiritual gift, which means that every member is gifted. And so if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you have been given a gift from the sovereign Lord himself for you to use for the good of the church. You are gifted. The church does not have a talented and gifted program. So, so for me growing up, right, there, there was a, a, a talented and gifted program. It was TAG, or, or in New York County, it was called Extend. And so a couple of students, so there's this group of students, they were Extend. They were the, they were the Extend students. They were special. And so every... I don't know if it was once a week or, or once a month or, or however often it was, this group of students would, would be bussed up to York High School. So I went to, I went to Tab Elementary School, and, and they would be bussed all the way up to York High School. And they, they, would, they would have a special program for the gifted students. And so some of the benefits, they got to miss a regular day of school. 
That's not fair. <laughs> but, but more significant, at least in my mind at the time, was, was the extent students got to eat high school lunches, which was cheeseburgers and Mrs. Fields cookies. They were special. They were separate. Other kids weren't gifted like them. The church is not like that. There's no talented and gifted program. We're all in extend. All of God's people, every member of the body of Christ is talented and gifted. It must be so because Jesus gave gifts to each member. Hear this, Christian. Every individual believer is bestowed with grace from Christ and is called into the ministry. Every individual believer. Are you a Christian? If you are, answer carefully, because if you say yes, then you are called into the ministry. Period. No exceptions. A Christian who is not actively serving the body is a Christian who is neglecting the grace of Christ that's been given to him or her. No exceptions. If you're not serving, you're neglecting grace that's been given to you. The implication for church life here is huge. As one commentator notes, the mark of a healthy church is one in which every member is aware of the grace of God upon their lives and is actively ministering. So that the body of Christ is not a place to sit and soak, but to serve. Giftings may be different. Yes, variety of gifts. Roles may vary, but being a Christian means actively serving the body in which you are called. And so, if, if you're a member of another local church, just hear me say, go home and serve. Find your spot. Young people, you have a role. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus, you've been given his spirit. You've been given grace to serve the body, regardless of your age. And so, go home. Meet with your pastor. Meet with your leader and say, hey, where can I serve? Right? That's your homework. Go home and do that. If you're a member here, we have areas of need. We have areas of need, and so I would urge you, urge you, I'm not, I'm not guilting you, but I would urge you, are you serving? Our body is lacking if you're not. I'd love to point you to some areas of need, so talk with me, pray about it. Every member is gifted to serve. Well, well let's move on here, verses 12 through 16, our second, second point, the main purpose that Paul lays out this gifting. So, so Christ has given diverse gifts, but it's for one purpose. So look there at verse 12. He gave all these gifts, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine or by human cunning or by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Now, notice, this is important. Notice the flow of Paul's thought here in verses 12 through 14. So verse 12, he's given very specific gifts apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, in order to, verse 12, equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Christ has given specific gifts 
in order to, verse 12, equip the Christians, the members, the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, that's his point right there. We could stop. That's his point. These gifts that are directly tied to the development and the maturity of the church, right? they're given for the purpose of equipping the church. Which then leads to the next prepositional phrase for the building up of the body of Christ. And so Jesus gives gifts to individuals who are then to equip the saints to, along with them, build up the body of Christ. Do you see how that, that, that logic works? It's important because it means that Christ has given gifted leaders to the church not merely to do the ministry of the church, but to invest their time in developing and preparing fellow believers to engage in the ministry of the church. I mean, that, that is paradigm shifting for a lot of people. The work of the ministry is done by the body as a whole. The work of the ministry is not done primarily by an individual that the church calls. Do you hear that? Right? If I'm the only one doing the work of the ministry, we will fail miserably. I promise you, I'm not called to do the work of the ministry of Fox Hill Road Baptist Church. I'm part of it. But we are together to do the work of the ministry. My job is to call you, to prepare you, to equip you to do the work of the ministry. If you put a burden of ministry on Kevin or I, right, that is an, if, if our burden is to do the work of the ministry and you do nothing but pay our, our, our salary, you're neglecting your God-given responsibility. You're to do the work with us. Now, if we're not helping you do the work, okay, that's, that's a problem that should be addressed. But if you say, hey, you do it, I'm paying you to do it, that is unbiblical because of what Paul says right here. The work of the ministry is done by the body corporately as a whole. Church ministry is not something that can be simply assigned to a few specific leaders, to a professional, to a group. Christ gave gifted leaders for the equipping of the saints so that the saints might do the work of the ministry. The building up of the body is the specific work that he points to here. And all this is done, the end goal of this whole process, verse 13, until we all maintain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ. And so I think this is just three, three lists that Paul says, here's, here's maturity and here's how it's worked out in the life of the church. So, so, so God gives gifts to individuals who then prepare the church that the church might be built up together, might mature to spiritual health. And so every Christian is called to this goal, to helping the church build and, and be built up in love and to mature. And so we all together journey towards these three goals, towards unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, towards mature manhood or, or perfect manhood, towards the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so we, we aim to grow towards Christ, towards Christ's likeness, towards maturity. And we do so as those who've been uniquely gifted by him for that purpose. And as we mature, as we pursue that maturity, the negatives of verse, six, of verse 14 are avoided. So as a church is built up and growing and maturing and, and strong, what verse 14 doesn't happen. We're no longer children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, deceitful s schemes. And so what Paul's saying is that immaturity 
being spiritual children, being those who are tossed to and fro by every little wind of change or carried about by every little wind of new doctrine or, or those who are easily deceived and led astray, immaturity, being spiritually immature children, these things ought to be increasingly uncommon in the life of a church. So the church ought to move away from those things and the way that we do it, according to Paul, that these things are left behind as a church grows towards maturity. I mean, I just have to say, false teaching has always and will always be an enemy of the church. But false teaching, the way that God designed the church, false teaching should have no place in the church, even if it comes from a leader. Because the church is called to be maturing and to recognize false teaching. The reality is that false teaching only finds a place in a church of spiritually immature people. Mature people smell false teaching from a mile away. Mature people hold their leaders accountable. Mature bodies are led by doctrinally sound, biblically faithful teaching. There's a standard by which every church stays within the bounds, within the rails. And when, when a church goes outside the rails... Right? That is a sign of immaturity because there is a set faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so churches pursue maturity with doctrinal precision. Statements of faith are essential because there are outsides that we must not go towards. We pursue maturity. And over against this false teaching, Paul urges all saints, so instead of speaking falsely and 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 false teaching and leading others astray, verse 15, we're to speak the truth in love, which inevitably it leads to a growing up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And so the truth is what we're called to speak in love. Notice it's not, it's not just speak the truth, just get it right, and that's all that matters. No, it's the truth in love is the call, which I think we could say that the truth, if spoken with a lack of love, misses the point as badly as false teaching. It's not enough to have the truth. The Christian confession must be accompanied by love, right? And and this love is expressed within the body to one another within the context of the body. And as this happens, as we all speak the truth in love, we grow up into Christ who is our head, which is what verse 16 lays out. And so Christ is the head who has given gifts to his church. And Christ as the head is the one who leads us and nourishes us, and supplies us with gifts. And he does so for the explicit purpose of growth. And according to verse 16, the way that we grow is when each part is working properly, when each part is playing its role in the growing and maturing body through the inner working of every member grows, builds itself up in love. And so let me just close with three points of application, and I've already hit on all these, so it'll be brief. But the first point of application is simply my job description. This passage goes against how many churches today view the the job and calling of their pastors. Pastors are called to equip Christians for the work of the ministry. Yes, pastors are called to do the work of the ministry, but here in this text, the emphasis is that the work of the ministry is done by all the saints, which means that if you see deficiencies in the ministry of this church, one area to address, yeah, you should ask, are my pastors equipping me to do this? But the primary, I'd say the first area to address is, are you carrying out the ministry? Are you playing a part in the ministry of the church? If you're a Christian, you're a steward of your local church's ministry. Second point of application, spiritual growth. 
your spiritual growth, according to this, verses 7 through 16, your spiritual growth cannot be separated from the Christ-given gifts that he's given to particular members and ministers in his church. The implication is that your spiritual growth cannot happen apart from your participation, your inclusion within the local church. So Christ gives gifts to his church to equip and train and to help the church grow. So if you're outside the church, you could claim to be a Christian, you're not growing. Jesus gave gifts to the church for the church. For you to be disconnected from the church is to be disconnected from the purposes of Christ giving gifts. The authority of the authority of Christ from which he's given his gifts guarantees that his body will grow up into maturity. Right? There's hope for churches right? because Christ has given gifts to his church. Outside of the local church, there are no gifts. Outside the context of the local church, there are no gifts. You find a place where a, a gift, a spiritual gift, is exercised or encouraged to be exercised outside the context of a local church. They don't exist. They're all given for the good of the church. Then last application, the headship of Christ. This passage teaches that the victorious Christ is actively serving and leading his church. Right? We, have a, we have an authoritative head. Since the resurrection and ascension of Christ, he has been and continues to be actively involved with his church. And this is good news for us. We little Fox Hill Road Baptist Church at 335 Fox Hill Road, Christ himself authoritative, head of all things, has been and will continue to be active with us. This is good news for us. All authority in heaven and on earth accompanies the great commission of the church. The authority of Christ, when paired with his commitment to the church, this is the bedrock of hope and confidence for us. And so when Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, No political party, no governmental ruler, no amount of persecution can ever overcome that promise. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. He means it because he has the authority to ensure it. That makes all the day. He's not making an empty promise. Friends, Christ is with us. He is leading this church. He's sustaining this church. He's protecting this church. He's ensuring the growth and the increasing ministry of this church. And that is good news for us. That is worth rejoicing in. He is our head. Let's pray as we close.